Welcome to the Neighbor Food Podcast. Welcome. Welcome. Now, it's a food podcast, but hey, can it all be about delicious recipes and characters and butterflies and beautiful <laughs> things? No. Ah. Uh. No. This week, we brought in a bit of a heavy hitter to talk to us about food and its impacts on the world around us. This is Dr. Sure Colin did. Sage, a recognized worldwide for his research on food policy and the environment. My name is Colin Sage. Uh, I'm a retired academic, had worked in University College Cork for more than 20 years. Uh, I was retired um, by the university in 2019. In other words, it wasn't my choice, but it was public service obligation to, um, to leave and to do something else. So I decided to do something else by moving to Portugal. And I've been based here for the last uh, uh, two and a half years um, during the pandemic and uh, building an alternative existence for myself here. Well, he's an independent scholar. He's an author on environment and food. He's a book editor. He's the ex-chair of the Quark Food Policy Council. And he's preoccupied with the contemporary food system, its social and environmental consequences and ways that we can develop healthier, more sustainable and resilient food provisioning alternatives. In this conversation, we spoke about the way food and environment interconnect. And while this is far more than just a climate issue, we focus on some of the discussions around food policy at COP26 and other climate meetings such as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in August 2020. Really dramatic action is needed to to address the catastrophe that's, that's coming towards us. And we also looked at some of the Irish agricultural policy in relation to these climate issues. And will food production and how we approach it play a role in solving the trend of environmental harm that we are seeing? Colin's other expertise includes civic initiatives for social change. So we talked to him about his work with Cork Food Policy Council and in particular the role of community gardens. And I've always argued that the moment you put your hands into the soil, your relationship to food changes absolutely fundamentally. So let's get stuck in. Here is our chat with Dr. Colin Sage. The reason that we asked you, Colin, to join us is, is a meaty topic that myself and Jolene could never possibly get into, but we're going to try our best to talk about food and the environment. And can you be our Northern Star and try and break it down a small little bit for us? And let's have a little bit of a chat about that. Maybe will we use COP26 as a guideline to get stuck into that? Would that work? We could, we could, um, we could. Uh, I, I, I mean, I think the thing to say at the very beginning is to is to be aware that the way that food and environment intersect is more than just through climate. Mm-hmm. So there are multiple ways in which um, the, the, the production and provisioning of food uh, to societies all around the world has continuously been changing, transforming the environment. I mean, from the very first um, of our ancestors that planted a seed or a, a, a tuber in the ground, um, you know, that there were, were there were trees cleared to make space for, for agriculture, mm. you know, 12,000 years ago. And so the use of fire to, um, to you know, eliminate forests to make way for growing food has has meant, of course, that, you know, the environment has always been uh, transformed at the hands of of food getting, 
you like, mm-hmm. the idea of simply yeah. how do we produce, how do we get our food. The concern now, of course, is the uh, is the extraordinary intensification uh, that has been taking place for the last, well, you could go back several hundred years, but certainly the last 70 years has witnessed the most extraordinary transformation of agriculture. Mm-hmm. And therefore, lots of changes have occurred to the environment across a whole range of different aspects, um, including, of course, um, you know, changing land use, uh, but also as a consequence impacts upon biodiversity. Mm-hmm. And so what that means for flora and fauna, you know, in, in habitats around the world. Um, and, uh, and as agriculture has developed also, what it has meant in terms of our use of freshwater resources to sustain agriculture. So, so beyond climate, we can think about biological diversity, we can think about freshwater depletion and pollution, Mm-hmm. And we can also think about the use of nitrogen fertilizers also as a way of significantly impacting upon, um, you know, environmental quality. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of things to talk about in that respect. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but certainly climate is possibly one of the most pressing concerns that we have right now. Mm. OK, so would you agree that now is kind of a pressure point where action is not so much necessary, but more um inevitable change is 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 urgently is urgently required um and significant and transformative change uh is is urgently required um it, it's it, it it i mean we could say it's <laughs> we're, we're we're verging on um a point at which you know we've been leaving it so late so ma- mm. so many scientists have been saying for so long you know, action was necessary, action was required, you know, going back 20, even 30 years ago. Uh, and so now we're at a point where we say, yes, it's urgent action is required. It means yeah. it's very profound action is required. The longer we leave it, the more dramatic that change has to be. Mm-hmm. So anything that might have been regarded as necessary incremental change mm-hmm. 10 or 20 years ago is no longer. I mean, we have probably five or six years before we crash through the 1.5 degrees kind of um you know budget that we mm-hmm. you know when everyone's talking about or well, they were talking at cop 26 about 1.5 degrees we've got six years before we um we crash through that that particular uh target and so we're really heading really to two degrees now and, and of course unless urgent action is taken we're probably going to crash through two degrees and into and, and, and end up at three or four degrees. Well, we can already see right now the consequences of what 1.2 degrees in, increase in, temp, in pre-industrial temperatures is doing. You know, mm-hmm. what we witnessed last summer, um, the, the, the floods in Germany and Belgium and the Netherlands, the fires, you know, around the world, including in Greece, Turkey and, um, yeah. and, and, and the West Coast of the United States. Uh, flooding in China, New York. I, I mean, you know, dramatic changes are taking place. Um, and it's difficult to know what we need to, to do um, to get politicians to take action. Mm-hmm. But of course, the problem is, you know, I mean, I, I, I've seen Don't Look Up, the, the, the film, you know, yeah. which I thought was very good. Um, and, and, you know, with its faults, but it does kind of, lead us to think that you know we do get distracted by meaningless kind of issues on the side 
when really dramatic action is needed to to address the catastrophe that's that's coming towards us. Sure, the, um, the urgency is is easily avoided by escaping into trivial things, you know. I have a question. In terms of the agreements that came out of COP26, one of the big things we've heard about is the reduction in coal consumption. Mm-hmm. What was um, what was it in terms of food production? Was there any anything particular that came out of that? Well, that that's the really critical question, Jolene, because actually food was, was almost entirely absent from COP26. Mm. Um, uh, there were some food, um, there were a lot of food people there. Actually, there were a lot of mm. corporate food people there on various delegations and various official delegations. But the idea was, uh, I mean, the, the non-governmental sector uh, was pushing for the Glasgow Declaration on Food and Climate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Glasgow Declaration was, was, was to try to uh, secure an agreement in support of uh, action to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions from the food and agricultural sector and to um, to make food much more resilient. Um, now, in some ways, uh, because, you know, the bigger picture was focused upon fossil fuels and and mm-hmm. all of that, food was really was really missing from the from from the final discussions uh, and and that well, for, for those of us who work on food, we saw that as being a major, major issue. Mm-hmm. But I should say, if I can here, um, prior to COP26, which was in November, of course, in August of last year, um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, produced the first of its scientific reports um, on its sixth assessment report. So it's produced five of the two. Mm-hmm. The sixth assessment report, the first installation of that, the first installment of that rather, came out in August. And it's from Working Group One, which is the science of climate change. Uh, and it was, well, I mean, if you compare it to um, the, the kind of first, the, the, the first assessment report, which was very much couched in terms of we think this is happening, you know, we believe, you know, climate change is anthrop- anthropogenic and so on and so forth. This was completely unambiguous. This was very, very clear. But also it made clear that the possibilities for doing something about it in a way that I hadn't done before, most especially it pointed the finger towards methane. Okay. And it was highlighting methane as a short-lived greenhouse gas there were other mm-hmm. short-lived greenhouse gases, including nitrous oxide. But it was also pointing out the potential benefits to be gained from taking action around some of those uh, short-lived greenhouse gases. Okay. In other words, um, methane is a, um, is, a, is, a, is a short-lived greenhouse gas with um, a, a, a generally a lifespan of around 10 years, a decade, in the atmosphere. And it has a higher global warming potential. In other words, it has a capacity to retain heat in the atmosphere 85 times greater than carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. Okay. So although it, it occurs in limit, much more limited quantities than CO2, um, it has a much more powerful effect. And so what the IPCC report was saying is that, and other reports since have been highlighting, if we could take action on methane, mm-hmm. we could really begin to start to see some short-term benefits it would open up some space for us to be able to tackle then CO2, which is a long-lived gas. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're talking in excess of 100 years, you know, mm-hmm. and so all of the, you know, the, this carbon dioxide that we emit today is going to be with us until, you know, at the, well, into the next century, into the next, mm-hmm. you know. 
Yeah. And when you say action on methane, what are they actually suggesting? What are the action, actionable points? Well, they, they, they have the science and they're simply pointing to the, um, uh, to the, to the gas. And this is where uh, it comes to other policy makers then to say, well, how do we, how do we take action on methane? And of mm-hmm. course, what's one of the biggest sources of anthropogenic methane? It's ruminant animals. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, it also comes from rice paddies and it comes from mm-hmm. there are, you know, uh, uh, emissions that are uh, fugitive emissions from the fossil fuels industry. And you might remember that at COP26, Biden led a methane. Um, there was a discussion and an agreement that there would be some um, action on methane. But that seems to be because it was led by me, uh, by, by Joe Biden. Um that there would be some effort directed into the um, fossil fuels industry, particularly fracking and the leakage that comes from fracking activities, which also obviously, you know, that's where methane originates from. Mm-hmm. But of course, what it means uh, for others is to say, well, other sources of methane are ruminants. And if mm-hmm. we could do something about uh, ruminant emissions of methane, we could also make, um, uh, make take some action. And this, of course, is where Irish agricultural policy uh, comes into very sharp relief. That That's great, because I was actually just about to ask you what is happening here in Ireland in terms of this. Have, have you got much experience with the with the Irish agricultural policy? Well, um, uh, yes. <laughs> okay, you're living in Portugal now. I'm living in Portugal and therefore and no one knows my address so I don't expect a a hit squad to come down from Dublin but um, before the the COP26 meeting there was a United Nations Food System Summit that you might have heard about Mm -hmm. um, or you might not have done because it passed off for those of us that pay a lot of attention to food policy at a global level we, we were anticipating this event it was a one-day event in, in New York in September as part of the United Nations uh, General Assembly meetings. And this day was dedicated to talking about the food system. Um, and, and, and really, um, by the turn of uh, 2021, the beginning of the year, most of the um, non-governmental organizations had decided to boycott the event because it was a really had been captured by giant corporations. Mm-hmm. And they had really effectively, you know, completely engineered the agenda to to you know be be addressing their concerns. Now, uh, the the thing about that uh, food system summit was that um, there was a lot of play around dialogue. You know, there was going to be lots of ways in which people could participate and dialogue with national governments and with various groups and so on and so forth. And the Department of Agriculture in in Ireland. Um, uh, was willing, I mean, because it's always very active at the U- UN level in the international kind of fora, um, said it would host a, 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 a national dialogue uh, sort mm-hmm. of discussion. And, um, and I was invited to be the keynote speaker at the second of these national dialogues. Um, what I hadn't realized before I accepted that invitation was that the, this national dialogue, it, it began in April and went through May and so on, was really an opportunity for the department to launch uh, Food Vision 2030, okay. which is its latest iteration of mm-hmm. ag- you know, agricultural policy. Um, and I should say, this is agricultural policy that's drawn up by the food industry, by the agri-food industry, 
and then which gets accepted by government as national mm-hmm. policy, which mm-hmm. is really something that we've paid too little attention to. The fact mm-hmm. that big business is effectively making policy, uh, which is then subsequently adopted by government. However, um, you know, I, I mean, the whole the whole event was uh, well, and 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 the and the, the the series. There was some discussion, but of course, it's framed very much in terms of the way in which the way in which the Irish government always present, or at least the Department of Agriculture and other state uh, organisations like Board Beer and Chagask. Are, are, are promoting Irish agriculture is feeding the world. But of mm-hmm. course, what we're effectively doing is producing beef and dairy. Mm-hmm. Now, some of that dairy goes into infant formula feed, which is problematic mm-hmm. enough, but let's put that to one side. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and, the, and the beef, I mean, Ireland is a major producer of beef. Sure. It uses 10 times more than it can possibly consume. So it exports a lot of that beef, ostensibly because it's feeding the world, but it was interesting when I was in um, in Rome in uh, in November, Jack. Um, I was in a, an area where the uh, American University is. It's, it's an area called Monteverdi, and on the side of a bus shelter in Monteverdi was a big poster, as you see on the sides of bus po- uh, bus uh, bus bus shelters, um, saying "Irish beef, grass fed, mm-hmm. fully sustainable Irish mm-hmm. beef." So this feeding the world is actually a Monteverdi is a very wealthy neighborhood <laughs> on Rome, in Rome. And, and so you, what you've got is this promotion of Irish beef to well-off consumers in Italy and other parts of Europe. It's not feeding poor people in, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa who couldn't yeah. possibly afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, and indeed, there are some, some side issues around surplus uh, dairy products being mixed with palm oil and being also sold in 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 sub-Saharan Africa at the moment, but that's another another issue. Um, so in some ways, we're we're not fully addressing the issue of Irish agriculture being so heavily based upon beef and dairy, and 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 all this creative energy is going into um, telling a uh, being deceitful about about that, as if we're feeding the world when actually what we're contributing to. Um, is a problem which is exacerbating climate change. Now, you know, I've just done some writing around around this question. I've just done some... I, I mean, I, I, I feel frustrated because of mm-hmm. the, 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 the deceit which this sort of promotional work embodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of hubris around this. There's a lot of, you know, talk about climate smart agriculture and resilient agriculture, regenerative agriculture. Effectively, what, what's happening is that farmers in Ireland are growing grass and putting lots and lots of cattle on that grass. Yeah. And as a consequence, there's a lot of methane coming off that grass and there's a lot of pollution entering into our waterways as mm-hmm. a result of that, that, that mm-hmm. production strategy. And it's just very, very poor for the environment. But of course, it's um, it's generating something like eight billion euro in export earnings every year. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, what do you think we should do about it in your <laughs> ideal world? Well, you see, I think what we have to do is to take stock and say um, this is not really a sustainable way forward by any mm-hmm. stretch of the imagination. However much the department or Chagas or, or or particularly Board Beer and Origin Green and all of that kind of rhetoric tries to do is to is to say this really isn't a sustainable way forward um 
particularly in the face that all of the overwhelming evidence is that if we're going to do anything at a planetary scale, we have to really reduce meat consumption uh, mm-hmm. across the board, across the board in, in rich countries, not mm-hmm. in poor countries. But when I say rich countries, I also mean probably middle income countries. And mm-hmm. China, for example, now eats um, more than 60 kilograms per capita of meat, um, which is probably just over what can be possibly, you know, yeah, I would say it's probably about 20, 25% more than could be uh, imagined as a global equitable kind of, um, you know, budget. And of course, in, in Europe, we're eating 85 to 90 kilos of meat per person per year. In the United States, it's higher again. So all of those kinds of levels have to be brought down. That's not to say we all have to become vegans. I'm not promoting mm-hmm. that at all or vegetarian. But we do have to find ways globally of reducing meat consumption, especially, you know, meat consumption involving ruminants such as cattle uh, and find ways of uh, replacing that with plant based diets. No mm-hmm. doubt about that. If we're going to have any hope at all of, of addressing the, uh, the climate change challenge. I struggle to see how it'll get to that point without there being major policy changes. Like, I don't see the public hearing that there's a need to eat less meat and therefore eating less meat. It's very difficult. It's a, it's a marketing mess, you know. It's hard to get through a day without being advertised a meat product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, 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 it's not a marketing mess. It's a, it's a marketing success story. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're selling a product, you know, and you've basically browbeaten any opposition into believing that what you do is, is great, um, this, is, this is a story. But you see, this is where there's such a, an extraordinary in, in, inequity in the promotional budgets of, um, of big corporations selling their product, irrespective of its benefits for human health or planetary well-being, uh, over, over, you know, if you like public, um, uh, public health messages. I mean, I'm just, I was, I'm struck that, for example, um, looking at Coca-Cola, for example, which I don't think anyone could say Coca-Cola promotes products that are um, beneficial for human health. They might be enjoyable to consume, but they're, they're not necessarily beneficial for human health. But Coca-Cola in, in 2015, for example, had a marketing budget of four billion dollars, and that's um, that was more than twice the World Health Organization's total wow. budget. Oh more than twice that's the total budget. Phenomenal, isn't it? Yeah. And and it, and and that and that marketing marketing budget for Coca Cola is ten times the WHO's health promotion budget. Mm-hmm. And you know we've seen the the WHO perform being on the front line. You know, uh, during the last eighteen months or two years, you know, really busy trying to protect lives around the world, and yet Coca Cola has a budget for promotional purposes alone to sell effectively. Forgive me, junk food and beverages, mm. you know, um, uh, which is so much greater than than the budget that WHO can put its hands on, and and so again, you know, um, we're going to find those that are busy promoting, you know. Uh, meat and dairy products, you know, not only can they promote those products because alternatives have much less um, availability of finance, um, but because they're also controlling the narrative so much more. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the interesting things that um, I, I, I was I, I was working with some people before last year, um, 
you know, they were looking at um, uh, the, uh, the in the United States every five years, there's a committee that's brought together of very high level nutritionists, dietitians, and other policymakers that are brought together to advise the federal government what they call the dietary guidelines for Americans. Mm-hmm. And in 2015, uh, that committee made a re- made a, a recommendation that those dietary guidelines for 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 Americans should include reference to sustainability and a mm-hmm. way of perhaps reducing uh, meat consumption as part of the diet, as part of a healthier diet, as and, and as part of a sustainable diet. And the um, the American livestock uh, industry basically ensured that there was going to be no reference whatsoever. To sustainability, and and so they put sufficient pressure upon the um, Secretary of State for Agriculture, um, who is the same Secretary of State for Agriculture today under the Biden administration, and um, he basically told the committee, "You have no remit to talk about sustainability. Um, you know, therefore, you shouldn't go anywhere near that area, and uh, dietary guidelines have to focus only upon, you know, salt, sodium intakes, or whatever it might Oof. be." Uh, mm-hmm. And 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 so this is the trouble with the food in, with the food system has become so powerful. I mean the the the, the industrial and uh, corporate interests behind it have become so powerful that they're really reshaping the message, the narrative around um, uh, food products um, on an everyday basis. So it is difficult, um, as you say, Jack, for people to really do you know the right thing by themselves. Yeah, mm. yeah, and it's harder for those small. I suppose artisan food producers and like little little industries really to fight up against that really isn't it? They're just too big. Well, I, I think in some ways one could take a kind of slightly pessimistic kind of view on that and say, my God, yes, how can they survive? But actually, what one can can hopefully identify is the way in which those small businesses fill the interstices between the big companies. Mm-hmm. So in other words, they're basically finding these little spaces where mm-hmm. those aren't being covered. Now, the problem is with um, with those big corporations is that if they see signs of something developing and emerging, which is gaining traction in the market, then those those small companies get quickly taken over. Yeah. Um, that's happened a lot in the organic food sector, for example, um, where there's been an attempt to you know, to to build a, an organic branding for many mm-hmm. of the mainstream food uh, food companies, because they can see that consumers, so-called consumers, uh, are, are are trying to do the healthier option. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's one concern. But on the other hand, I also see you know emerging businesses coming out and playing around and looking to fill gaps which might be overlooked spaces. So I, I'd be hopeful in that respect. Okay, what kind of... Can I just quickly show show you something? This is such a terrible um, device to use on a podcast because I'm going to try and show you an image here and we'll have to just describe it for anybody listening. But can you possibly see that? Oh, yes. Yes. Okay, Okay. so what we're looking at is a graphic um, of a fish and there's about 90% of it are small little golden fish and then they're chasing a big shark, which is halfway through the mouth. Would that be a good description of it? It would be a good description of it. What do you think? If all the tiny fish can resemble a shark, could they possibly eat the big shark is kind of the way I see it. No, but what they can do is to create um, autonomous spaces 
where those um, uh, where those sharks are uh, are, are, are are not welcome. <laughs> so <big>. this <laughs> is like this is like marine protected environments. So these mm-hmm. marine protected zones. If you could sufficiently um, populate those marine protected areas with smaller fishes that outnumber, it's not that those big fishes can't kind of begin to see uh, and look in, but, you know, the sheer force of number might keep them out. And I think we have to start thinking territorially in that way, Um, not in an autarkic way, not by saying, look, we're going to, you know, close down our borders, our frontiers and, you know, but we do have to think, how can we build an alternative food system that starts much more from the territory in which we're living mm. and where we've got links between producers and eaters in a more organic kind of a way? And how can we grow and foster and collaborate and, and, and build that system? I think that's where the, the encouragement should come from. Yeah, um, I have one more question on this before we maybe move on to a different topic, but if tomorrow, if you could click your fingers and tomorrow something major changed from all the work and the studies that you're doing, what would you like it to be? What would be the one big change? Oh, I don't know. Um, I don't know. That's that's putting me on the spot. I, I, and, I, and, and really, I'm not so sure. We're off script. <laughs> off script. Um, I'm not so sure there is a singular, the singular solution, actually. I think I would prefer to see a number of much smaller kind of... Um, uh, solution uh, uh, issues kind of raised collectively because that's the nature of I think more effective policy making is to understand that there is no singular uh, kind of magic bullet that's going to solve our our, mm. our kind of impending catastrophe. Um, it's mm. more likely to be a series of steps because after all, when we talk about the food system, we're really understanding the interconnectivity of so many diverse things that are all connected together which Mm. includes things within the food system, but also includes things outside as well. Um, So I prefer to see a series of small steps being made, um, you know, across the board that would help build, I suppose, energy and activity and collaboration uh, to begin to move things in a a more positive direction. And if you were to advise the likes of me, Jack, you, just the normal person, what three or four steps could we do to make these changes? Well, I, I have to say that if if it comes down to individual behaviours and individual practices and so on, I think we all have to take a very close look at our, at our diets, um, and and therefore, and I'm all all of us that are listening in uh, to this are already looking closely at our diets, I'm sure, um, and and uh, it, so it probably doesn't apply to ourselves, but it, I mean, I think looking at our diets and and looking to displace as much as much meat off the plate as possibly can be done, I think is really a critical factor. Um, and that's not to say again that, you know, I'm advocating for vegetarianism, I think, but less meat, even better better quality meat, I think is a really important kind of issue. Um, and, and, and yeah, so I, I would say that above all else is very important and, and trying to find things more locally, I suppose, as far as we can. That's a really critical issue around which is what neighborhood stands for. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, let's get stuck into that and talk a little bit more about the work you've done with artisans in the past, what you've learned about that and any kind of uh, experiences you could share. We're talking cottage industry. I know you've done a lot of work with cheesemakers and I know that you also worked with the um, the UCC diploma in speciality food. 
Can we talk mm. a little bit about that? Um, well, the UCC Diploma in Speciality Food has been going now since about um, 19, um, 2005, 2006, 2007, some, somewhere around then. It's been going a, a good length of time. You know, we've had really fantastic cohorts of students came through that program. Um, we've uh, we've had a rotating kind of director, academic director of that program. Um, it's anchored in this unit, the Food Industry Training Unit inside UCC, uh, run by some great people there. Um, uh, but but actually, um, yeah, it, it, it's been a, a really very interesting kind of experience being associated with that because um, uh, students that come are all interested in getting involved in some way in, in food. Some of them might come from family farms and are looking to add value to what they've been producing. You know, they've been in liquid milk production. They, they can't see a future in selling more liquid milk given the falling prices. So they, they, they come to find out what could they do to add value to their product. Um, and, and so there's some very, very interesting people that have come to do that. I have to say over the last three or four years, perhaps even five years, um, the Department of Agriculture has very generously supported uh, bursaries to pay, to part fund the, the, the fees uh, for students on that program. So um, as a way of saying, I, I, you know, I can be critical of the department, mm. but I also want to acknowledge that it also understands the importance of this, mm. of this program. And I suppose you could say that, well, it would do because actually, you know, Irish artisan foods have really sold a very, very good story about, you know, the quality of food. And sometimes I think, you know, mainstream agriculture then piggybacks on the on the back of that, mm. uh, of that you know, the artisan sector, um, you know, and, and, and kind of appropriates the green and clean kind of Im- image. Nevertheless, that's another day's work. The, the, the issue, I think, around artisan food has been has been one of real struggle by these individuals. Uh, I mean, when I think of the work that I started to do back in the early 2000s, um, you know, working with some of the cheesemakers in West Cork, I mean, they were facing some really hostile circumstances, um, really difficult circumstances where the state was really diametrically opposed to their existence. Mm. Okay. And cheesemakers who had the audacity to think about using raw milk Mm-hmm. other words uh, unpasteurized milk to make cheese my god it was it was really such a challenge for them to come through that many kind of couldn't and and were basically threatened with closure completely if they didn't uh, go into pasteurization and some of them went down that route still produce some very very fine cheeses but they were mm-hmm. pasteurized cheeses but there are some very heroic individuals um I don't really want to make, you know, name names, but um, I suppose Jeff Gill at Durris was one of them, you know, mm-hmm. who really has flown the flag for, uh, for, for raw milk cheese. And, um, and I suppose it was around that time, well, you know, in the early 2000s where um, uh, there was that first, that event with, um, with West Cork Natural Cheese uh, that had its, um, a, a stock of cheese, um, basically locked down by uh, the department because of a concern with uh, tuberculosis in a okay. contributing dairy herd. And there was a whole court case that went through the district court, was then you know, found in the cheesemaker's favour, was appealed by the 
Food Safety Authority of Ireland, who then didn't contest the, and then stood aside and let that uh, appeal collapse. And then it was appealed again by the Department of Agriculture to the Circuit Court. Uh, and that whole story about, you know, the, I think the bullying nature of that process of trying to close out a, close down a, a, a food producer really kind of served to actually begin to, I think, improve both the, well, the collaboration amongst the, the cheesemakers themselves and other small food producers, but also I think they probably had an effect upon the department to say, look, we probably have to find a way of of, of collaborating more, uh, more, more harmoniously. And I suppose one of the key people in that process, well, two people really, Kevin Sheridan and Seamus Sheridan, I suppose the Sheridan cheesemongers mm -hmm. uh, were, were important in terms of helping to uh, facilitate that dialogue and, and, and through the um, Taste Council of Ireland, for example, begin that process of, of uh, I suppose, building a, a, a greater degree of confidence and, and, and mutual understanding between both sides. Um, mm. So, um, so they, it, 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 it's certainly been difficult, I think, for many of those artisan uh, producers to um, to make good. Um, and you know, there's been a lot of difficulty with farmers markets, for example, because farmers markets have come under under you know restrictive regulation by local authorities, who you know who, who and those local authorities may have received as this is in the case in Bantry, for example, where the long-standing market there goes back several hundred years, you know, um, where, where, you know, shopkeepers began to sort of say, well, why do these people turn up on a Friday and sell their products and they're not paying rates and this kind of thing? So it's required quite a lot of careful working out at local level as well between, you know, the, the stallholders as well as, um, you know, producers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's a lovely story to listen to, but it does make you kind of say, well, what like, what's the impact or what like, is there any genuine change that ends up coming from this? But I, I have looked a small little bit at figures and excuse me if they're wrong, this is from the, the Tagist website, but basically pre-1970, all cheese, most cheese that was consumed by people was industrialized cheese, while mm -hmm. since kind of 1990 being the year when the farmhouse cheese thing properly kind of took off and became an industry there is 60 farmhouse cheese producers as of 2020 and that it is accounting to um 800 million per annum wow that's a lot isn't it yeah yeah well some of those are, are fairly big you know, small producers, in other words, Cashel and, um, mm. you know, they've grown into quite sort of successful uh, uh, producers with a, a significant export market as mm. well, you know, so, um, and others would be much smaller. So in a sense, there is a big, big spectrum of, of range and, and capacity mm. in that uh, in that sector. Mm. Um, so, um, but no, I mean, I think it speaks to also um, the innovation and the, um the capacity of that sector to find ways of, of producing good quality products. And mm. I think they do that in spite of, rather than because of uh, the state, you know, sometimes. Mm. I don't think they get enough support um, quite often, although supports are there. I'm not saying that they're not, but often it requires quite a lot of work uh, on the part of those producers to, to make their businesses viable. For sure. Um, another part of your research and your writing Colin, is in social initiatives. 
And what I mean by social initiatives are groups, members of, of, of a community who may not necessarily produce food, coming together and creating ways in which they can either produce food or share food or make food accessible. Um, I'm familiar with quite a few of these, both in Italy now and, and, and in Ireland as well. We see them pop up in lots of different places. Can you share with us a little bit about, about your research in that, what you've found, maybe what you have found that has worked or is working quite positively? Yeah, I think I think the interesting thing about this is 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 the sheer diversity, the heterogeneity of many of these initiatives. Mm. I mean, I often look in Italy and look at the the gas groups, the solidarity purchasing groups, and so on, which have been so successful in Italy, and think, my God, you know, wouldn't it be great for us to do that in Ireland? Um, and in Ireland, we do other things, you know. Mm. I, I mean, I, I suppose the one uh, that I've been most closely associated with has been the the Cork Food Policy Council, you know, which was um, was was really came out of work that started in Nocnahini on the north side of the city, um, you know, an area which you know meets all the kind of indicators of of social exclusion and so on, and um, and 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 the work that started there um, in around two thousand and nine. Well, I mean, people have been working there for quite a long time in various. Um, community activities, but there was a specific food project that began in 2010, um, supported by Safe Food, and, and that turned out to be very, very successful. And the, a community garden was established. And, and once we came to the end of that project, um, it seemed to me that this offered, you know, a, a, an, an insight into the ways that we could roll out this kind of a model across the city. And that was the why why we sort of launched the um, the Cork Food Policy Council. In uh, in 2013, and and since then, over the last couple of years, there have been some really interesting developments going on mm-hmm. in terms of um, new new community gardens that have been developed in the South Parish, in Toker, um, you know, around the place, um, uh, working to create green spaces, but also, in, in, in importantly, get people who may hitherto had not paid a lot of attention to food, get them involved in growing something. Mm. And I've always argued that the moment you put your hands into the soil, your relationship to food changes absolutely fundamentally, right? Mm. You're, you no longer you know, expect all of your food simply to come out of cellophane and polystyrene wrapping. You begin to start to feel something, I think, you know, incredibly important about where food comes from, where it originates. And it's from the soil. And if you're involved in that process of growing and nurturing plants and eating them uh, when they're ready, I I think that fundamentally changes uh, changes us. And that's why I I think one of the things that, you know, the Food Policy Council did in Cork was to help and to foster this kind of an initiative around food growing. Um, mm-hmm. And I'd like to see more support by the city council. I think it's done something in that respect. But really, this is a, a win-win-win kind of initiative because mm. you're improving the quality, the aesthetic quality of the neighbourhood. You're bringing neighbours together who hitherto may not have spoken much to each other. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. You're creating all sorts of opportunities for improving mental health. The, the benefits are just limitless in, in respect yeah. to these kinds of initiatives so um uh, i'd like to see more of that but you know it, it depends upon you know 
volunteers and and human capacities and so on. But that's one area which I think is is very good. And again, we're seeing that being rolled out in other parts of Europe and North America. Yeah. And can you just explain on a kind of pedantic level, maybe just how it actually works? Because someone listening might be kind of interested. So someone within the community contacts the council and looks for a space that they can be allowed access to. They might have a familiarity with growing or they you know they might not and they might do their research and go and visit a farm and figure it out and everybody learns together and that person becomes the caretaker so to speak of the community allotment and then an encouragement is put around to the rest of the neighborhood to get involved and a roster is set up and expansion happens based on the buy-in from the community am i am i right in you're right but you you can't be too specific about the precise nature of that because every place is specific and Mm -hmm. and one of the things that i suppose one of the golden rules if there is a golden rule of any of this work is that do not think that there's a blueprint that you can simply import and download and install there Mm -hmm. isn't and Mm -hmm. every place is distinctive based upon the 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 material resources it has the, the the land capability and what you know what space is available but also human resources mm-hmm. and the and the precise nature of the skills that people bring to that how many people there might be what they have to offer you know mm-hmm. the, the, the amount of time that they have available all of that all has mm-hmm. to be kind of considered and it can be worked out on a spreadsheet it ends up being an organic process of trial and error and so on and mm-hmm. and eventually things settle down in some kind of um effective you know system operates um some some of course you know are not successful they they collapse because of one thing or another but i think if if everyone begins small i think if anyone listening has an interest in this certainly to reach out to their to their local councillors and so on i mean in in cork city we put in place a recommendation that was accepted by the 2015 Cork Development Plan that anyone asking for uh, access to land that should be granted, that there should be some facility enabled to enable um, people in the city to have growing space. And that might be allotments or it might be community gardens. So they may be more held collectively. They might be held pro, you know, privately, all of that. And there's a range of different kinds of arrangements that people have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, and, and also to, to look up on websites like the Cork Food Policy Council and other websites, Cork Healthy Cities, you know, all of these things have, have, have experiences to offer. Yeah, and in a couple of weeks, we're going to do a deep dive with Eric and Katrina Johansson, who, who set up a market garden with, with zero knowledge or, or <clears throat> probably basic knowledge, but, but with, kind of inspired to do so on a whim. And, and they're going to take us through their, their kind of journey in doing that. So we'll get stuck into the semantics about how to actually go about and do it. But that's really interesting that you can just reach out to your local councillor and, and put your hands in the air and say, give me yep. some land. Absolutely. And, and, and that's because, you know, there, there, there should be still in, in, the, uh, in the court development plan, the commitment to ensure, and, and of course, not every council will have that. But I think on the whole, there's sufficient awareness now that there wouldn't have been 10 years ago, that city councils, um, you know, the councils have got a kind of responsibility to, to find mm-hmm. ways of doing, of doing and facilitating this work. Um, mm-hmm. So and, and the interest in food is only going to grow, I think, more and more. So I think 
the door is ready to push open. I think if if it, if mm-hmm. it does, if it, even if it appears closed at the moment. So, as we heard, Colin is now technically retired from his position as a lecturer, but that will not stop him. Colin is a visiting lecturer for the Food Master's course at the University of Gastronomic Sciences in Bra, Piedmont, Italy. Established in 2004 by Carlo Petrini, founder of Slow Food, it is focused on gastronomic sciences and the organic relationships between food, ecology and cultures. I had an invitation to, because I met with Carlo Petrini in, in Cork, in back 2003 uh, or to early 2004 and I was invited to join this this seminar this gathering of academics to talk about the university and talk about its pedagogy and um, so we, we we had this meeting and then I was invited to come back and do some lectures and basically I've been going back ever since. I would love to have Colin as a lecturer he is um pretty pretty fascinating to listen to it was really really good to talk to him and uh, learn about his work so that's us for this week guys um looking forward to catching up again next week see you next week woo <laughs> woo woo <laughs>